Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Quality Care Talks. Sponsored by the Health Facilities Association of Maryland, HFAM, Quality Care Talks explores leadership, innovation, and the critical issues facing long-term and post-acute care providers serving Marylanders in need. Whether you are a provider, vendor, or consumer, Quality Care Talks will help you navigate the complex and ever-changing healthcare industry. This is the HFAM Quality Care Talks podcast. Thank you so much for listening to us today. And please join me in welcoming Milton Moskowitz. Is it sound like you're old if I called you an HFAM living legend? No, no, that's all right. It's okay? I don't think I'm that old. I don't think you're that old either. I don't feel 97. Well, I, you know, Milton, I got to tell you, I really appreciate you making the time and opening your home to me today and being able to sit at your dining room table after a delightful lunch and talking a little bit about your life and your career and also HFAM. You know, HFAM turns 70 this year. So we're a little younger than you at 97. That's right. But, you know, I've been with the association over nine, going on 10 years now. And by my math, You've been involved in HFAM for about half of our history. Well, I've been involved in uh, HFAM at least since 1964. That's incredible. Yeah, that's incredible. That's incredible. So listen, you're a trained pharmacist and you have been a national leader in pharmacy and the evolution of pharmacy. But I thought maybe we would begin a little earlier than that and begin with the fact that in your service in World War II. So in September of 1943, you were in the Navy. Exactly. And what was your, what did you do in the Navy? What was your, what was your rating? My my rating was seaman, but nevertheless, even as a seaman, I was the helmsman aboard a destroyer escort vessel. Well, it was the USS Holder. USS Holder. And in 1943, you all went on your maiden voyage. Maiden voyage in, uh, oh, I believe it was in March or April. And what happened? We were bombed by a uh, torpedo from a Junker F-88, a German airship. So on on your maiden voyage, your ship, the USS Holder, is torpedoed. Not sunk. But it listed on the side, and 36 sailors were killed, mm. and we were towed into North Africa. And what happened after you were towed into North Africa? What did they do with the ship? Uh, the ship was actually dissected in half and put on another vessel. So they cut the ship in half uh, right? and made a new ship? Made a new ship from two Disabled ships. That's incredible. It shows you what we had to go through as a world in being victorious in World War II. It certainly was a tough job. Unbelievable. So you get the ship sunk right out from under you on your maiden voyage. 36 of your shipmates perish. If the torpedo had gone a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right, it would have hit the magazines. It would have blown the ship apart, and everybody would probably would have been killed. That's incredible. And the ship had uh, 300 sailors aboard, including the officers. Wow. In a, in a pool of sailors awaiting their orders, a Lieutenant J.G. asked, 
hookah type. And I raised my hand. And because I raised my hand, they assigned me an assistant secretary in the security department. So you became a typist. You became a secretary. I became a secretary and a typist. And I ended up with a uh, third class degree. So you're a third class petty officer yeoman. Yeoman. So you became a third class petty officer yeoman by the time you got out in 1946. That's right. So you get out in 1946. You've got your beautiful young bride, Judy, right? And what? You decide to go to GW and study pharmacy? I decided to study pharmacy because the family was related to uh, a number of pharmacists, and they thought that it would be a good profession for me to go to. I uh, resisted for a while, but then decided to uh, go to pharmacy school at George Washington University, and I graduated four years later with a Bachelor of Science in Pharmacy and went to work right away. What's interesting about your career is that, you know, you had been an office worker at Bethlehem Steel earlier in your career when you first met Judy. She was working for the union and then you wanted more money. And the only way you could do it was to become a welder. So you did that. You go back and you serve honorably in the line of fire during World War Two. Yes. You come back, you go to GW, you graduate in four years, but you were really only an employee for, what, 18 months, two years, right? Exactly. And you decided pretty early on then that you wanted to have your own business. Yes, I did. I thought being my own business would be a good way to establish a substantial career. So you hooked up with a partner, and in 1954, you bought an existing pharmacy in the District of Columbia. Exactly. And was that a retail pharmacy at the time? A retail pharmacy. We had no knowledge of what care was all about at that particular time. Uh, As a matter of fact, we were not familiar with nursing homes at all at that time. Right. You were just ma and pa, you know, Mr. and Ms. Exactly. You know, you were compounding pills back then, right? You were pounding things in, what do you call those things that you pounded? Pulverizing. <laughs> no, we were manufacturing pills. Well, no, we were dispensing pills in powders that we made with our own skills. But that was not pharmacy. That was just part of it. That was just part. Of it. Now, 64 is a big deal. 1964, 10 years later, is a big deal because do you form the company ASCO? It's an acronym of accredited surgical company. ASCO. Right. And at that point, you become a pharmacy and medical equipment provider for what were then called nursing homes, what today are called skilled nursing and rehab centers. Is that right? That's correct. So your clients were nursing homes who were caring for, at that point, predominantly the elderly and who were older of varying levels of health. And you provided Everything what from, give me an example, of medical equipment to medicine? Give me an example. Well, medical equipment in the simplest sense would be a wheelchair or a commode or a catheter. And then, of course, there were prescriptions. Medical supplies was really a big deal because everything that was necessary for the patient, from a cane to a knee brace, 
to a wheelchair, to a hospital bed. Those were the items that we carried. You know, um, I've been really blessed, Milton, that you and I, and we'll talk a little bit about this a little bit later, but that you and I have been able to spend a bunch of time together uh, in dialogue since I joined HFAM nine years ago. And I, I love the story about you buying your first wheelchair. So you, you decide, well, I think I'll get into the medical equipment business, right? You're a pharmacist and you bought a wheelchair, right? What a, a second wheelchair. And then that rented out. That rented out. And you bought a second wheelchair. That's right. Right? And then a short time later, how many did you buy? 100 chairs. <laughs> and this is the 60s, right? That's right. So in the 60s, you go out in a, what, in a matter of years or months, you make this transition from one to a hundred, like months, right? That's all. And you buy a hundred. How much did you pay a piece? $45. $45 for a hundred wheelchairs. Right. And then were you afraid? Did Judy call you crazy? You came home and talked to your wife and said, you're crazy. No, you're not in your head. No. Didn't listen to anybody. You didn't listen. You took the risk. Did you sell them or rent them? We did both. But we uh, got rid of all 100 shares in three months. That's incredible. That, I mean, what an incredible story. It really is incredible. But it was a bargain at that time. It was fairly priced. And people needed wheelchairs. And they came to us to get them. So there's going to be a reoccurring theme for those of you listening to this podcast and this interview with Milton Moskowitz, one of HFAM's living legends. There's a theme to this. And a couple of the themes are creativity and risk-taking. So now we get to maybe 70, 72, and there's a new product put out by Xerox called the telecopier. Exactly. And what, what did the telecopier allow you to do? It allowed me to electronically receive medication orders from the nursing home. They would put the written order into a into this device, and we would receive it electronically and then be able to fill the order. So this was like a precursor to the fax machine. It was called the telecopier, and later it was called a fax machine, or they put some improvements in the machine and then called it a Xerox fax machine. And of course, we called it a fax machine as well. But when we purchased it, it was a telecopier, and we decided it was a fantastic way for the nursing home to send their orders. They wouldn't have to deliver, or we wouldn't have to get the prescription order by going there and getting a piece of paper with the prescription written on it, and then fill it in a vial. Let's unpack this a little bit. All right, so pre-telecopier, you were getting orders on the phone from nursing homes. It was you and a partner, and you were filling those orders. You were basically formulating medicine, and so they would call you. They had a medical, a doctor's order for a prescription. You would fill it. They would call and tell you that, and then you would have it messengered to the nursing home for the patient, right? Two pharmacists. And then at its peak, post-telecopier, you now are receiving the orders over what we now call a fax, even though it wasn't a fax yet. So they're writing an order. They're transmitting it to you on a telecopier. Now you have, what, eight, nine, ten? How many pharmacists did you have at that point at a peak? Three. Three at that point. But that allows you to scale it and fill much more orders much more quickly. 
right? Yes. We filled maybe about three or 400 prescriptions a day in the beginning of the fax machine. And toward the latter days, we filled as much as 4,000 prescriptions a day. Okay, that's more than three pharmacists at the end. That's right. That's about 10 pharmacists. So you got to 10. So you started, right, so I just want the folks to listening today to understand. So you start in the 50s. You're an employee a very short amount of time. You open your first business in 54 in the District of Columbia. You're in Silver Spring in 1964. You get into the telecopier part to scale your business. You move from Silver Spring to Columbia, Maryland, right? And by way of measure, when you started with your partner, even on the nursing home side, maybe you did 400 prescriptions a day. By the time you got out of the business in the early 80s, you were talking about 4,000 prescriptions a day. A day. That's incredible. Well, when you multiply the amount of nursing homes that we had and the amount of prescriptions per day, it added up to a lot of prescriptions. And it really added up to that many prescriptions per day with all the nursing homes because it wasn't a question of 10 nursing homes. It might have been 20. Right. And when you think about as many prescriptions as they ordered, it really added up to 4,000 prescriptions a day. All right. So we're going to unpack this because we're going to come up here on our third innovation and creativity and bit of risk taking. So first, it was medical equipment and the wheelchairs and all other types of medical equipment. Then it was the telecopier. But then when you started and still in pharmacy today, as of today, you know, I have elder relatives. And I guess a lot of people would consider me now pushing 60, an elder relative. But, you know, you have people that keep their medications in vials, plastic vials, in in shoeboxes in nursing homes back then, right? And so you came up with a third innovation that had to do with ease of delivery of the nurses working in nursing homes, but also in terms of medication management, you came up with mass-produced bubble cards. And each bubble card held 30 pills or 30 capsules, numbered, one to 30. And it had the patient's name and the prescription number, and it was put into a cabinet according to the name of the patient. And it was very simple for the medication nurse to find the medication, to punch it out, and to pass it to the resident. It was much easier than looking for a vial and getting the medicine out of the vial, putting it in a, to a medicine cup. In a was, cart. You guys put it in a cart. Yeah. And there was no need for a pill to be taken from a, from a vial, put into a little paper cup with a glass of water when you can just punch it out of a bubble cart and pass it to the resident. And you would know immediately, I mean, if you kind of were rushed and you weren't paying full attention you'd know immediately that you had passed the med because you could see that there was a hole in the bubble card. That's right. Now, there were people that manufactured this at the time, but you didn't actually love any of the folks that were doing that. So you adapted other technology, right? You guys literally bought equipment to do this. I did exactly right. What'd you buy? Well, I bought people Yeah, to, yeah. to, to run. I, I bought what, a, what is a photographic pressing machine which allowed to put an adhesive film on a uh, hard board 
piece of paper. So we were able to create the bubble card very simply by creating a uh, what is called a model. And we were able to use the model to uh, put out a lot of plastic cards at one time. And the innovation that we came up with was instead of using plastic and having the pill make the bubble, we prefabricated the bubble and the card and were able to fill the card very, very quickly and rapidly. As a matter of fact, talking about other manufacturers, there was a manufacturer of a bubble card who liked what we did so much that he bought our company. <laughs> not, not the pharmacy company, just the bubble card company. So all he bought from us was a list of customers, and we got a substantial amount for that company. That's pretty incredible. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. So getting back to HFAM for a second, you've been involved since the 60s in HFAM. You were there right there at our midpoint, building us into what we are today. You know, we represent 150 of the skilled nursing and rehab centers in Maryland, about 26 assisted living centers, about 7580 associate members, and our skilled nursing and rehab members provide over 5.6 million days of care a year to Marylanders in need. And you all built that with, with the people like Roger Lippertz and, and other. Tell me a little bit about what your impressions were of Roger back then as you were growing and building both the industry and the association. Well, I thought that Roger was a very good example of a person who knew what he was doing, who knew the industry, and who cared about the patient. And not the very least, he was very concerned about reimbursement and did an excellent job on obtaining reimbursement for the nursing home, practically all by himself, with the help of the professionals that were in charge of the nursing home at that time. He was quite a character because he really, really understood what healthcare was all about and how to make money at it. Well, you know, he's brilliant and uh, he's value driven. You yeah. know, my, my impression of Roger, and of course, I've only known him for, you know, a decade. You've known him for several decades. My impression of Roger Lippitz is that he is just absolutely off the chart brilliant, but also very much value driven and knows the value of creating value, I guess, if that makes any sense. I mean, I think you've been a master at that, right? I mean, your whole career has been about creating value, being creative, and taking risk. Would you say? I certainly agree. Being driven, taking a risk to be innovative. Don't be afraid. If you're afraid to understand what you're doing and gamble at it, then you won't be successful. Part of the blessing of being an association executive and being blessed to be the CEO and president of HFAM is that people actually ask me to come and speak from time and time again. And I recently gave a speech, and here's what I said. I want to get your reaction to it. I said that in order to be successful as a provider or associated with a provider today in long-term care, post-acute care, that you have to realize that people are at the heart of your enterprise, whether you're a for-profit or a non-for-profit, that quality is actually your product and that data and knowledge are your power. Does that resonate with you in your career? I think you couldn't have said it any better than I would. I think quality 
driven by taking care of the resident in its entirety in terms of the condition of the patient and the uh, drugs that they need, need a very knowledgeable clinical team approach. Can't be done by one person. Has to be done collaboratively by a group of people who are the disciplines that drive the quality for the resident. That's excellent. So teamwork, resident-centered, and I noticed you focused first on the clinical aspect. You didn't focus on other parts of the enterprise, that you started with the clinical being first. Is that the pharmacist in you, you know, heal first? I think so. I think, I think what drove us to be who we are was really having an eye for the patient, having an eye for the people that we serve. Even when it was a mom-and-pop drugstore, it was a patient that counted, not how much money we made. Did we do the right thing? Did we give them the quality of medicine that was necessary for them to get better, get well? So I'm going to ask you a question a little bit about risk-taking, creativity, and the secret to your success relative to Judy in a minute. But after that, I'm going to ask you to give advice to those folks who are looking forward in the skilled nursing and rehab sector or in healthcare, and for you to give some advice for those of us that are focused on carrying your good work forward. But, you know, I would be remiss thinking about my marriage and my relationship with my beloved Rebecca to ask you, wasn't Judy ever like freaked out with all the risk taking that you did? I mean, did she was okay with all that? She said, go ahead. Is that right? That's right. She was your bookkeeper, right? Early on? Yeah. Our relationship was fascinating because whatever I did in pharmacy was okay with her because she knew that my motive was correct. I never did it for a selfish reason. I did it because I was doing a better job. It's incredible. Yeah. It's incredible. So listen, Milton, you've been absolutely wonderful to make this time today. I've got to ask you, you know, uh, we'll talk in a minute about the fact that, you know, we all know the book Tuesdays with Maury and you're my Monday with Milton guy. In that vein of Mondays with Milton, what would you say to the skilled nursing and rehab operators now to wish them and give them a roadmap for continued success? Well, you have to run a business. There's no question about that. So you have to have a good staff that knows what a business is all about. But I think that the most important reason for you being in business as a mission is the resident who really, in fact, pays your salary. So the better job that you do, the more residents you will have to fill the beds that you have. So you never have to worry about getting business if your mission is correct, because people will know what your motive and what your mission is. Too many people have the attitude that nursing home providers and this might be something to, for you to understand. If a patient feels that you're in business just to make money, they're going to take a second look. So understand that you're really in business to make a profit. There's no question about that. But your real motive is to take care of the resident. And taking care of the resident, I am sure, will guarantee that your beds will be filled. 
And that's true. Boy, I tell you, words to live by. That's true whether you're operating a for-profit enterprise, yes. a non-profit enterprise, whether you're focused on mostly post-acute care and getting Marylanders home quicker and stronger and well, or you're focusing more on long-term care where people are their safest and most well and most engaged in your center, whether you're running part of the business or both of those businesses, it really is about quality, compassion, and care. And really, mission and margin are two sides of the same coin. And I really, really cannot thank you enough for all that you've done for me in the last nine years, for all that you've done to build HFAM since the mid-1960s, for the literally hundreds of thousands of prescriptions that you've been involved with in your career. You've made my life better. You've made HFAM a stronger organization, and you've made Maryland a better place. And so I can't think of any more fitting living legend to interview for the HFAM Quality Care podcast than Milton Moskowitz. Thank you, Milton. Thank you very much. I would like to say one thing, that you have to have it in your heart to do the right thing. I think all my motives in in life is always do the right thing and everything will come out on top. That's awesome. Thanks again, Milton. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Quality Care Talks. We would love your feedback on today's episode. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes. Quality Care Talks is produced by the Health Facilities Association of Maryland, the state's oldest and largest nationally affiliated association of skilled nursing and rehabilitation centers. For more information, visit www.hfam.org.